wrestling fans, welcome to another edition of Charting the Territories. My name is Al Getz, and with me, as always, is John Boucher. How are you, John? Hello, Al. Hello, hello, wrestling fans. Happy October. Happy it's our hollow. Is this our Halloween episode? I didn't bring my sound effects record. I haven't. Uh, uh, yeah, done no. This is out. this is coming out the Thursday before Halloween, so I guess it is our Halloween episode. Uh, I don't think we have any spooky uh masked wrestlers or mummies or anything like that to talk about so hopefully you will uh, find other ways to be scared of what we say <laughs> i do want to apologize if i'm a little hoarse we are recording this the day after the atlanta braves clinched the national league championship series i was in person at the game at truist park and i screamed my lungs out for a good <laughs> three plus hours uh, i'm pretty sure the entire city of atlanta is hungover or still drunk <laughs> i will say not me though i had a couple of uh, light beers the way to do it before the game started uh and then afterwards instead of descending upon the city and going crazy i just decided to walk home and uh just celebrate by myself but yeah this is exciting this is the first time the atlanta braves have been in the world series since 1999 yeah wow and it was really exciting game. So this year, I already saw a no-hitter in Texas when the Yankees no-hit the, the Rangers. But this was far more exciting. This is the second imagine, yeah. uh, league championship series I've been to. I went to a game in ALCS uh, 10 or so years ago in Anaheim where the Yankees were playing the Angels. And that was a wild experience. But this one just took the cake because everybody was just so pumped, so psyched. Uh, this was the first elimination game in the championship series to be played at the new brave stadium because last year all the games in the playoffs were held in texas um, yeah it was very exciting i watched the, the like the, the the latter half of the of the game was very very exciting the the crowd was crowd was very 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 pumped i don't know how it came off on tv but uh they were really really off. pumped and psyched. but john you also had a uh, live event experience of your own since we recorded our last episode last month oh, yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. attended all elite wrestling at a tennis stadium so tell us yeah. tell our listeners how was that it's actually it's my second time at arthur ashe stadium actually i was there actually for for tennis for the u.s open Maybe I guess maybe three or four years ago, when my one of my uh, last freelance gigs, one of our clients was a a a German uh, automobile manufacturer. I guess I can say that and figure out who it was. So I got we got uh, you know great great seats. I don't know how the seats trickled down to me for the U.S. Open. We we were in the second row, so I could smell Roger Federer as he as he walked by. Um, did did he smell nice? He, he smells. He smells great. He smells. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's smells, even he after the match. Exactly better at that. You know, wow. like maybe it's just the pheromone. Maybe it's the pheromones. I don't know. Um, exactly the opposite experience for AEW. I was in the second to last row for the AEW show. But that's a great stadium for wrestling. Like I don't know what what the technical difference is. How the, the it's set up. Uh, a great the view sightline. Everything was was, was great. Um, it was long. That's my. Uh, it was very long, a very long evening. It was like a like a going to like a WrestleMania. It was like five hours, and Grandpa gets tired. But um, it was yeah. It, it was uh, full disclosure. I don't watch a ton. I don't watch the weekly 
weekly wrestling stuff. I don't watch War on SmackDown or Dynamite every week. I watch like the pay-per-views or whatever you want to call them. I watch those. That's my involvement level with with modern wrestling. But it was it was good. The, the AEW Dark they started with the Dark. That stuff was just you know Dark was the Dark stuff. Uh, Thunder Rosa was on the Dark, who I love. I think Thunder Rosa is fantastic. Yeah, um, she is. She really is one of those, you know, on wrestling Twitter, even one of the most divisive places in the entire world fraught with with anger and vitriol. Everyone there seems to agree that Thunder Rosa is awesome. Um, But she's only on Dark Show, which but it was fine. Uh, Then Dynamite, you know, that was the uh, and that was the big uh, the big thing. Dynamite, I thought, was fantastic. It was put together really well. I loved it. Um, I have no complaints. Then they did the Rampage taping after that, which um, I didn't. I didn't enjoy quite as much. There's a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on. I didn't understand a lot of a lot of factions happening in AEW. Like everybody seems to have a faction, um, so uh, I was a little confused by all the factions, all the factioning. What, were the, um, were the nation of domination there? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't notice. No. That. Okay. Well, they may have been. They, uh, have been uh, they had so many factions, you couldn't keep track of them all <laughs> without a chart. <laughs> yes. Yes, we need to chart the factions. Wait, only uh, homicide did a surprise appearance. That was kind of kind of cool. Um, yeah, it was, but it was fun. It was long and fun. If they come to New York again, and you know, Arthur Ashe, City Field, that stuff's twenty minutes from my apartment. So if they're if they're in the neighborhood again, I would I would go. And if they're if they're if they're in your neighborhood, I, I would I would recommend going. It was, it was good. It was good. Good time, good time. Yeah, good time well, they're coming to my neighborhood. They just announced a date uh, in suburban Atlanta uh, over in Gwinnett County, which is north. Uh, well, it's basically a straight shot east for me. I don't know if I'm going to make it to that or not. But fans, if you want to see all elite wrestling in a town near you, follow them and check them out. But we're not here to talk about all elite. We're not here to talk about the Atlanta Braves. We're here to talk about the Leroy McGurk wrestling territory, the Mid-South wrestling territory, and even a little bit of talk about Mid-Atlantic championship wrestling in 1973. So we're going all back and forth, forwards, backwards through time. And also, this is our first episode as independents. We are the Bruiser Brodies of wrestling podcasts in 2021. Um, I really, truly want to thank everyone listening to us for coming along as we have moved to a new podcast feed. I also want to thank Brian Last and Arcadian Vanguard for being our home for the first year and a half of this podcast. Uh, but it was just time to move on. I've been working behind the scenes on some projects, and hopefully in the near future, I will be able to formally announce them. In the meantime, our podcast continues to be available on all major podcast platforms, and we're also going to post uh, links to each episode on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. So be sure to subscribe or follow us wherever you found us so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are available we generally release podcasts the second and fourth thursdays of every month so we are going to cover a few time periods we're going to start by going all the way back to 1965 where we see the local debut of a 19 year old sensation destined for superstardom plus the professional debut of another young man also destined for superstardom Sadly, tragedy would strike one of the two before he reached his full potential, while the other would go on to win the NWA World Heavyweight title in 1973 
eight years after turning pro. So, John, who am I talking about? Talking about uh, Bobby Shane and Jackie Briscoe, as Bobby Shane loved to refer to him. Uh, and it, it's 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 really funny. Like there, Briscoe often talked about working in Florida. You know, prior to becoming the, the traveling NWA champion, certain guys that he was, quote unquote, married to, you know, Bobby Shane, one of those guys, along with like guys like Dale Lewis, Paul Jones, could all be considered spouses of Briscoe during his, his time in, in Florida. And on, on the surface, Bobby Shane and Briscoe seem almost diametrically opposed. Briscoe being like the no nonsense, no frills, work, workhorse, gentleman athlete, and Shane being you know, somewhat more along the lines of what Jack would sometimes refer to derisively as, you know, a gimmick wrestler with the valet and a snotty teenage kid sort of sounded like that during his promos playing like the chicken shit heel. But they actually, you know, they have more in common than, than you might think. Like they both grew up, grew up fans of, of pro wrestling, fall in love with the magazines, going to the matches and, you know, getting involved in amateur wrestling at, at, at very young ages, you know, albeit, to 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 great different levels of success in their amateur careers. Yeah, and their paths will continue to cross over the years. But here we're talking about the second quarter of 1965. I don't think they were in McGurk's territory at the same time. I think Shane left before Briscoe came in. Um, but really, their paths crisscross. Uh, in various places and various times over the next decade or so. So we're going to talk more about Bobby Shane and Jack Briscoe. We're also going to talk about 1981 in Mid-South Wrestling, where we have a trio of baby faces feuding with a triumvirate of heels. Triumvirate Ooh. of heels. So you're talking about factions earlier. I guess we've got a little faction <laughs> in Mid-South yeah. 1981. And since all good things come in threes, the third quarter of 1973 in Mid-Atlantic, is also on the agenda. And this is right before George Scott returns to the area and takes over as Booker. And we're also going to have part three of my interview with Gil Culkin, where we address some of the claims that have uh, circulated uh, throughout the interwebs about uh, Gil Culkin and his father, George. So that is part three of my interview with Gil Culkin coming up later in the podcast. And before we begin, I want to mention my Wrestling History Mysteries podcast, which came out earlier oh, yeah. this month. It's part two of a several-part mystery entitled The Curious Case of Mr. Zabo. And in part two, we uh, really get down to the nitty-gritty where uh, we discuss Anton Ripper Leone, who my uh, mm. independent research uh, seemed to make one of the prime suspects and if it was Leone, then this mystery becomes even more mysterious. Uh, I urge you to listen yes. to Wrestling History Mysteries Part 2. But, uh, John, you you sort of know uh, where we're going with this. But here we talk about Anton Ripper Leone. And we also talk about Argentina Zuma, which is interesting mm -hmm. because Zuma has recently been in the news. We talked earlier about you going to All Elite Wrestling in New York. And that drew the largest paid attendance for a non-WWF, WWE, WWF show since 1960, when the main event was uh, Anton Antonino Rocca versus Mighty Zuma, Argentina Zuma. So huh. everything comes full circle. Yeah. Uh, they drew over 20,000 uh, fans for Raka versus Zuma. So we're going to, huh. in future episodes, we're going to talk more about Argentina Zuma and his potential 
as a suspect in the curious case of Mr. Zabel. We're also going to talk about Danny Hodge, who emerged as a suspect based on the research of historian David Baker. So uh, this mystery, it's almost to the point where it, it doesn't matter who it is. I mean, it matters who it is under the mask, but the story isn't about who's under the mask. It's about how we are finding that out. And we also found out how to pronounce Shandor Zabo. Yes, uh, because that's the interesting thing. Uh, this mass wrestler was presumably named after Mr. Uh, uh, was named Mr. Zabo, presumably after Shandor Zabo, who I had been mispronouncing. So thanks to, I believe it was Steve Ogilvie who uh, pointed that out to us on Twitter. And, you know, that's the thing I'm, I'm going to pronounce names wrong every now and then, particularly wrestlers from before, uh, you know, recorded television before all these uh, things that are on YouTube. So 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, I might get it wrong. So as always, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. And if I say something egregiously wrong, you are, uh, I encourage you to respectfully correct me. And in some cases, you know, if, if you, uh, you know, if you think I got something wrong, like a date or something like that, uh, provide corroborating evidence um, one of the, you know, one of the tenets of the curious case of Mr. Zabo is admitting that I got something wrong. Uh, and I really think as historians, it's so hard to get complete and accurate info. And it's important to acknowledge when you get something wrong. And what makes this case interesting is because my initial suspect ended up not being Mr. Zabo, because of who he was, it led me to dig deeper and reach out yeah. to many great wrestling historians in order to get the right answer. So by being wrong, it enabled us to do the research in order to get it right. Nice little life lesson. You can use that lesson in life, everyone. Also. Yeah. And uh, talking about old footage, John, you recently posted on Twitter some footage from Lou Thez's UWA uh, out of Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We mentioned this last month. You had, I think, just gotten one reel and were working on transferring it. So you posted that. Uh, that's up on Twitter at uh, J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. But the UWA, was was it 74 or 76? I think, oh God, I think it's 70. I think it's 76 off the top of my head. I, I have, I'm, I'm, I'm confused by it because I've gotten in the, in the, in the interim, I've gotten five more reels. Uh, <laughs> all throughout that time period. Um, actually, no, I have the one I transferred right here. Hold on. Okay. Da, 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 da. Yes, May first, nineteen seventy-six is the one I I have posted. I have got that up on on YouTube. You can find find me there. You don't need to uh smash that subscribe button or ring that bell. You don't need to do any of that stuff. I'm not trying to monetize any of this stuff. Obviously, I don't actually own the rights to this. I just got these reels and wanna wanna share them with you all. So. But uh, and it's, these transfers look great too, like the two-inch videotape reels. Uh, they look fantastic. It looks like it was recorded yesterday, which is it, it looks beautiful. So check that out if you want to see. Uh, uh, I've got some the young wild Samoans on that reel. Uh, one of the earliest uh, TV appearances of young Troy Graham is on that reel. Uh, you know, Luthez on, on commentary is a. Charming as always. Uh, it's, it's 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 enjoyable. So there'll be more soon, hopefully. Yeah. So keep an eye out for that. And John is not only transferring old reels to video; he's also sending me shit off of eBay. 
We're going to start that off. Uh, That's the first thing we do every month is shit. John bought me off eBay, where John is authorized to spend approximately $50 of my money each and every month to buy me random things off of eBay. And we do a live unboxing on the podcast. So let's dig right into it. John, I got two items this month. I think one actually came a day or two after we recorded last oh, month's episode. So we just yeah. missed the cup, but it is, uh, it traveled a long ways to get to yeah. Atlanta, Georgia. It came from Israel. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad I pre opened it because there was a, uh, it was taped up uh, pretty intricately, almost like one of those Chinese finger torture things. So, but I've got it ready. So we are going to take it out and see what it is. It is. Okay. <laughs> Uh, okay, it's in some bubble wrap, so let's uh, oh, undo the bubble wrap. It looks like stamps or stickers of some sort. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, well, well, of course. Who are Who is the yes, right. biggest wrestling family in Israel? The Von Erics, yeah. of course. Because, because, of course, the biggest wrestling stars in Israel would be the sons of a former German, you know, heel wrestler. Yeah. <laughs> Makes yeah. all the sense in the world. But these are uh, stickers <laughs> of the Von Erichs. And uh, it's, sadly, it's uh, the writing on them is in Hebrew, and I do not read Hebrew. Um, are these like address labels? I think they're, they're – the, <laughs> the eBay auction had them – Listed as notebook stickers, so you could put them on your, you know, your trapper keeper. Okay, your All composition right. pad. Yeah. Um, originally, I wanted this to accompany the the Michael P. S. Hayes survival tips from last month. That was that was the plan. You well, know, those came in really handy uh, after the Braves win last night because everybody was all drunk and wild and celebrating. So luckily, I uh, had learned my street smarts from Michael P. S. Hayes and was able to get home with no problems. But these are stickers of Kevin Von Erich. There are six small stickers and then one larger sticker, and they're all of the same pose of the barefoot (laughs) Kevin Von Erich. This is wild. This is so cool. Uh, and of course, I I will post... Like I said, I wanted them to come with the Michael Hayes stuff, then you really get the the yin and yang, but you know. Like that famous PWI cover with uh, Michael drinking the Jack and Carrie drinking milk. Which I'm sure was laced with horse steroids. <laughs> All right, well, that's item number one. Item number two did not travel as far. It comes from Mason, Ohio. So, uh, and this is a oh, this is a painting. Well, this is a, a drawing, a sketch. Um, and there's a quote from Ephesians six twelve: "For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood." but against principalities and power, against the rulers of the world of this darkness, against the spirits of wickedness in the high places. And it looks like Dusty Rhodes wrestling. Yeah. Who is he wrestling against? Is, do you know? Ke- Kevin Sullivan. Sullivan. Oh, okay. Sullivan. Yeah. Yeah. So that all makes sense now. It's yeah. like yes, a cool, and- like, like, like. Folk art, I guess you call that, right? I don't know. I guess it's folk art, yeah. But this is someone someone painted or drew by hand, and it is a picture of Dusty Rhodes locking up with Kevin Sullivan. Both of their faces are crimson masks, and you can literally yep. see the blood dripping down Dusty's body and staining the mat <laughs> beneath it. And uh, the artist uh, drew a a nice splotch on Dusty's belly welly. <laughs> so it is uh, definitely. Uh, 
very accurate portrayal of Dusty Rhodes against the Prince of Darkness, Kevin Sullivan, with a quote, with a biblical quote to match. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. That There's... is shit John bought me off eBay. We have the Von Erichs from Israel and Dusty and Kevin Sullivan. Wow. From Ohio. This dude has some stuff that's like cool, weird paintings of, uh, you know, like Bigfoot kidnapping John Benet Ramsey and running, you know, uh, just like weird stuff like that, like UFO stuff. And then some stuff that's just like straight up frightening. Uh, well, Bigfoot like, kidnapping John Benet Ramsey is pretty frightening. Oh, but this stuff, yeah, but there's some stuff that's like, uh, after, I didn't know, I didn't see all this stuff till after I got this for you. So I, at some point, like there was a few days where I was like, I, I'm worried about this guy having Al's address. But if, if nothing's happened thus far, I think we're, I think we're safe. I, I live in a very Whew. secure building. It will be difficult okay. for a, an evil doer or evil wisher to uh, get to my front door. Thankfully. Okay. So that's okay. good to know. Uh, speaking of uh, some uh, scary creatures, let's talk about the talent roster for Leroy McGurk's territory in 1965 in the second quarter. Uh, among the main eventers are Tiny Smith, who of course is Grizzly Smith, also Danny Hodge, Angelo Savoldi, Ike Eakins, and Joe McCarthy. So, you know, what we typically view as a junior heavyweight territory, of course, has Hodge, Savoldi, and McCarthy, but also has a couple of biggins uh, there in Tiny and Ike Eakins. And Tiny actually just comes in for a few weeks, and they do the old big guy and little guy versus big guy and little guy feud, where uh, Tiny teams with Billy Garrett to feud with Ike Eakins and Lou Kim, L-U-K-I-M. And recall, John, that Eakins was originally brought in the territory allegedly to get Jack Donovan. As for Hodge and Savoldi, Hodge finally gets his title rematches with Angelo, and on April 23rd, 1965, in Oklahoma City, Hodge regained the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title. And what's interesting is that after a series of rematches uh, throughout the territory, both men leave. Hodge goes to the Ghoulis territory for, uh, I believe, a few months, and Savoldi either is injured or just taking some time off as his name doesn't seem to pop up anywhere until September in the WWWF. As for Joe McCarthy, the other main eventer, he does something we don't see very often in this time period. He turns. He had been wrestling as a heel for quite some time, uh, but they flip him over to the side of good and right, perhaps to fill in the void uh, after Hodge left. But McCarthy had been occasionally teaming up with uh, Tretch Phillips, Elvis Presley's favorite wrestler, and the two end up feuding with some rather unique stipulation <laughs> matches. So, John, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who or what is Cherokee, and what does Cherokee have to do with this? Yeah, like a like a like a month month, you know, four or five weeks into this feud, McCarthy puts up Cherokee, his prize coon hunting dog, uh, which he values at one thousand dollars. Wow, and a thousand bucks in nineteen sixty-five, that's probably yeah. eight, nine thousand dollars today. So his prize raccoon hunting dog, Cherokee, yeah. is up for six. And what's it. interesting is, and you can see this on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. We actually list a town by town recap of the feud. But in one of the towns, Tretch won the match. Yeah. Tretch yeah. actually won. Cherokee. But what's interesting is what they do after the match where basically uh, McCarthy gets down on his knees and begs Tretch to please, please give him his dog back. 
and Tretch takes the chain off the dog and attacks McCarthy with it, causing the referee to reverse the decision. Thus, McCarthy ends up retaining Cherokee. And that builds to, I think, a boxing match the following week. That match was actually the semifinal to Hodge Savoldi, which drew a large house for Springfield, Missouri of 1,500 people. So my guess is... Since they knew Hodge and Savaldi were leaving, or at least they knew Hodge was leaving, and they wanted something to come back to with the big yeah. crowd, they did that big angle. Because in the other towns where Cherokee was at stake, it seems like McCarthy won those bouts by pinfall. So it seems like this was an angle specifically for Springfield because they had drawn such a big house uh-huh. with Hodge and Savaldi, and they wanted to hook those fans into coming the following week. Where, where was it? Like, like Shreveport, where they do uh, a stipulation where Tretch puts up, uh, like McCarthy puts up Cherokee, and Tretch puts up a, a property of equal value. Yeah, like, and they don't they don't state what it is, but I guess <laughs> I, know, I, know what it is. I guess it doesn't make sense, you know, for only one person to have something at stake. So they just uh, said, "I'll put, you know, this one thousand dollar prize hunting dog up." And Tretch had to put up something else worth $1,000, maybe one of Elvis Presley's robes that uh, Elvis had given to his friend. Uh, (laughs) Further down the cards, the upper mid-carders are uh, Jack Donovan, Tretch Phillips, uh, Billy Garrett, and Lou Kim. Plus, we also have Doug Gilbert, uh, Doug Lindsay, Don Kent, Tim Woods, Tony Manos, and a 19-year-old newcomer by the name of Bobby Shane. Mm -hmm. Now, Shane at... uh, Early in his career was a uh, teen sensation babyface. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk in a little bit about a magazine article where he is billed as the all-American boy. Um, yeah. I think most of our listeners know, you know, the the main points of Shane's career, and in particular that it tragically ended in 1975 uh, in one of the two plane crashes involving wrestlers in 1975. This was the one flown by Buddy Colt, which ended his in-ring career, also severely injured Gary Hart and uh, the future Austin Idol, and sadly took the life of young Bobby Shane. But if you want to learn more about Shane, there is a great, great, great profile on a now defunct website (laughs) Thankfully, due to the Internet Archive Wayback Machine, we are going to post a link to on Twitter. But this was from Barry Rose's Championship Wrestling from Florida Archives site. He still runs a Facebook group for it, but uh, I believe he took the website down a while back. But you can still find the article on the Wayback Machine. The article was written by Alfred Ticinetto. T-I-C-I-N-E-T-O. And Alfred, if you're listening and I butchered your last name, please let me know and I will correct it. Uh, But we'll post a link to that. It's really, it goes into a lot of detail on numerous stops in Shane's career, not just the high points where everyone knows about, such as Georgia and Florida, but really almost goes, you know, chronologically through everything. There's also a nice article written by the late Dan Farron (laughs) entitled Bobby Shane's Final Main Event. But one of the great things about Bobby Shane uh, is from some programs in Georgia. So I love in the old wrestling programs when the heels would take out paid advertisements. Yeah. And Shane had these in Georgia. There's a couple from 1973 where one of them, he is demanding a shot at world heavyweight champion Harley Race. So that narrows the timetable down to a few month period in early 1973. And one where he asks fans to sign a petition to have him reinstated after he was suspended. 
Uh, and they say, sign the petition and turn it into his uh, manager, Sir Winston, who was still in the territory. I believe it was because Shane went to either Florida or Gulf Coast full-time, I think Florida. So he was out of the territory, but they did an angle where he was suspended. And he was asking fans to sign a petition to have him reinstated. John, would you have signed such a petition? Absolutely. Stuff like this is 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 the re- is like one of the reasons like I love Bobby Shane and think he's he's so great. And also like at this at this point in his career, he was you know he was already thinking, you know, post post wrestling or not post wrestling, but post you know being an active participant in the ring. What am I going to do next? And I think he uh, he was getting involved with I think uh, you know Les Thatcher uh, who did like the Georgia program that was a ringside the Georgia programs. You know, he started working on those with Les Thatcher. Uh, and, you know, he did this multiple times, having stuff inserted into the programs or at the arenas. Um, and the one I love the one with with where, where he, he talks about Briscoe forfeiting. You know, he would do this. Uh, he did this a couple times with, uh, where either on television or at a hash, house show, he would challenge Briscoe. But he would only do this when on occasions when he knew. Jack Briscoe was wrestling somewhere else in the state or not or in the country somewhere, you know, where he couldn't make it to the show. <laughs> so when Briscoe, you know, didn't show up, uh, Shane would claim victory by forfeit and then would print up flyers saying he had defeated Briscoe and deserved a title shot or, you know, a title shot with Harley Race, whoever was champion or whoever he wanted to work this program with. I just love this idea so much, him printing up these flyers. And he, he did this like, like multiple times with this sort of angle. Um, you know, appealing to the loyal subjects, asking for them to reinstate the king. It's just fantastic, fantastic stuff. Yeah, he should. Um, we'll post he those. should have challenged Briscoe, you know, on the spot, and then say, "And if Briscoe loses, I get his dog." I don't know if I don't know if Jack Briscoe <laughs> had any pets, but yeah, and then you know, when Jack doesn't show up because he's not booked, uh, Shane could claim the animal for his own. That would be a nice <laughs> twist to it. Uh, following along with McCarthy and Tretch Phillips's feud. Um, but I mentioned earlier the April 1971 issue of Wrestling Review, uh, and Shane is on the cover where he's billed as All-American Boy. The article is clearly written when Shane was a babyface, and it's not long after the article came out that Shane turned heel. He had a big run in Gulf Coast as a heel, uh, which I believe was in the spring or summer of 1971. So, Pretty much after this article comes out, billing Shane as a good guy, uh, he goes and uh, messes everything up by turning heel. Of course, <laughs> given that it's April 71, it probably came out in late 70 and was probably written, you know, a couple months earlier than that. So we're several months ahead of schedule. Yeah, um, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty generic article as, you know, the articles are great for the pictures, but a lot of yeah. the writing in them, because... They don't give time-specific info. Yeah. Uh, it's just pretty broad-based. What, what, what you said, the pictures were interesting, and I have to agree 100% in, th- in this case uh, specifically because when you look at the, the Bobby Shane, the heel turn, it wasn't just like one like an angle on TV, now a bad guy. It was like a very – it happened over like a period of time. Like he – you know, he started – if you look at the photos in this article, you could see it. Um you know, at some photos, he's clean cut, you know, no facial hair, like short, short, relatively short cropped hair, looking neat and trim and, and fine. Uh, and, you know, but then over a period of a few months, he started like growing the mustache, 
growing his hair out, the sideburns, started smoking the cigar. It went from, you know, the, the, the types to like the, you know, the Tarzan type thing. It was like a very over, you know, over a period of time, he sort of transitioned into this full fledged heel. Uh, one of my favorite facts in that article we, we mentioned too, the, uh, uh, was that so popular was Bobby Shane, even though he was a heel, uh, his popularity was such that a, a local Tampa cigar company like named a cigar after him like that, <laughs> which is pretty remarkable for a wrestling heel in you know the early 70s to have a, you know, that sort of marketing behind that. Yeah, uh, we've got some pictures from your personal collection that we'll put up on Twitter, but they are uh, at various points in Shane's life. So you can see that transition. But uh, you talked about him having a cigar named after him. He also has a song uh, about him that came out probably at least 20 years after his passing, which shows you how lasting his legacy was. Uh, But this is from a Minneapolis-based band called The Leeds, L-E-E-D-S. And the full title of the song is called Why All the Girls Will Love Me in 1974 by Bobby Shane. That's the full title of the song. And then the song is by the leads. And the song is basically sung a first person. It almost, you know, reads like a Bobby Shane promo uh, from him as a heel. So it's just amazing that 20 years after his death, uh, bands are still writing songs about him, much like Chavo Guerrero and Bull Ramos were immortalized yep. by California-based band The Mountain Goats. Bobby Shane is immortalized by Minneapolis band The Leeds. Yep. Which is even almost more impressive because, you know, Minneapolis, you know, well, how do these guys hear about Bobby yeah, Shane? Yeah, I think, well, that's the interesting thing. I was going to talk about that a little bit later, but let's talk about it now. As you get into uh, 72, 73, Bobby Shane is one of those wrestlers that is making the rounds. He always has a home base in one territory or another, usually at this point, Florida or Georgia. But they bring him in for shows in uh, the major cities in other territories. Um, mm. Even He had a big run in Gulf Coast. And even after he left, they would bring him in occasionally for big shows in Mobile, uh, to fight Cowboy Bob Kelly. They would bring him into Mid-Atlantic for uh, the big shows, the monthly shows in Greensboro or Winston-Salem, which were usually held on Thursdays, and they taped their TV on Wednesdays. So it's an opportunity for him to work the TV tapings and then work a big, a big house show. And this is something that the NWA did with candidates for potential world heavyweight title runs. Um, huh. You see Jack Briscoe making the rounds in the years before he won the title. Same thing with Harley Race. Same thing with Dory Jr. Same thing with Terry. And even some wrestlers that ended up not getting the title, you can see they're almost tryouts. And I think Bill Watts is a prime example of that. And even in years later, some junior heavyweights like Mike Graham and Tully Blanchard, you can see them working very short stints in several different territories as a way of exposing them to the audience to perhaps uh, familiarize them with them in case they do decide to get uh, a title run. So it's it's been said that Shane was under consideration for a world heavyweight title run. John, do you know anything specifically? Like, is this just something that in the years since his passing has been built up and exaggerated or, or was there very real talk in 74 or 75 uh, about Bobby Shane as perhaps getting the world title? I, you know, I've heard, I've heard the same stories. Um, 
And the only person who, with any you know weight behind their opinion or or or, or voice that I've heard talk about it, actually was Jack Briscoe. Um, and Jack Briscoe said no, Shane was not. He was not in consideration. I have to take this with a grain of salt, only because you know I, I think it was, it was the same Q and A session I was reading. Uh, someone also asked Jack Briscoe about working in the the WWF against Bobby Shane in the 70s. And he was like, no, it didn't happen, (laughs) (laughs) which we know did happen. Yeah, we're about to talk about that. So, you know, it's hard to ask wrestlers what they remember from that would have been 27 or so years ago. I think that interview was from 2001. So it's hard to remember facts. What we do know about Shane was, as you said, he was interested. He was looking at a post-wrestling career. And of course, in 1975, uh, right before he passed, he had been brought into Florida uh, to be the booker, which I think was his first uh, time booking a territory. So clearly he was looking at other things as well. What I would say from the footage I've seen of him in 73 and forward, wrestling as a heel, it would have been a very drastic change from what typically they the type of person they had holding the world title. You think of Dory, you think of Jack. Uh, even Harley was a little, you know, was still a wrestler, whereas Shane was certainly flashier than the others and definitely flashier than Kaniski and O'Connor. So, I, you know, I don't know for a fact whether it was or wasn't true, but it would have been very interesting to see Shane as world champion because he had a sort of a different style and vibe than the previous six or seven wrestlers that had held the world heavyweight title. Uh, you talked yeah. about his matches with Jack in the WWF. They happened twice in February 1973, one in Boston and one in Philadelphia. And after the match in Boston, Bobby Shane was interviewed by a man who just celebrated his birthday, uh, the one and oh, only birthday. Bill Apter. Happy birthday, Bill Apter. Yeah. Um, so, and this was Shane's second appearance in Boston. He came in a month earlier and beat Tim Woods and then put over Jack. And so this is February of 1973. Jack would win the title uh, later in the summer. So again, you see Jack being groomed for the title, but you also see Shane being brought in as his opponent and built up with a victory a month earlier, uh, again, as a way to expose fans to some of the top guys perhaps being considered. But what's interesting about the program For this match, which we'll put up on Twitter, we had mentioned earlier a magazine article in 71 calling Shane the All-American Boy. This program bills Jack Briscoe as the All-American Boy. So apparently there were a lot of All-American Boys in professional wrestling in the early 1970s. And of course, a few years later, Bob Backlund would be billed as the All-American Boy in the WWWF. But looking at the card in Boston... Uh, the main event is Bruno versus Moondog Maine. And then the semi-main event is Jack versus Bobby Shane. And it's actually above a six-man involving, I think, Tanaka and a couple other heels against some of the top baby faces. So it, it's slotted pretty high up on the cards yeah. for two non-regulars in the territory. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, too, the all-American boy thing, too. It's... it's, it's a few years later, when Vince McMahon Sr. was looking for a new champion, who did they who did they who did they go to and ask for a recommendation? You know, we want someone who is just like Jack Briscoe, and they got you know Eddie Graham recommended Bob Backlund. So it's yeah. like it's a very interesting sort of history with all that there. 
Everybody wants somebody like Jack Briscoe to be their champion. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> but going back to Shane's run here in this territory, 1965, he's just in for eight to 10 weeks or so. And he is uh, built up as a babyface with a series of wins over some of the preliminary wrestlers and some of the mid carters. And then uh, he ends up trading wins and losses with several mid carters. Uh, among those is Terry Garvin. And Terry hmm. actually only was in uh, McGurk's territory at this point for a couple of weeks. He just has a brief two week run here. He had come in from Gulf coast, but Terry brought with him his younger quote unquote brother, Ronnie Garvin mm. and Garvin Ronnie did not work any of the house shows, but he did work one TV taping that we know of. And his opponent at that taping was a man in his very first professional wrestling match. A man we've all yeah. already mentioned several times in this podcast, but yes. So Bobby Shane is wrestling Terry Garvin and Ronnie Garvin is wrestling Jack Briscoe in Jack's debut as a professional wrestler at a TV taping in uh, Oklahoma. So Jack, of yeah. course, was, was born Freddie Joe Briscoe in 1941 in Seminole, Oklahoma, and his family moved to Blackwell when he was a teenager. One of the interesting things I learned from Jack's biography is that his younger brother, Gerald, Jerry Briscoe, was the first Briscoe to yeah. get on a wrestling mat in school, taking yeah. up the sport in middle school after failing to make the basketball team. But Jack soon followed and did quite well for himself. Jack went to Oklahoma State University. In his book, he admits he was conflicted because he wanted to go to uh, University of Oklahoma, which was where Danny Hodge went, uh, but yep. ends up choosing Oklahoma State University. In 1964, as a junior, he came in second place in the uh, Division I Wrestling Championships in the 191-pound weight class. And in 1965, as a senior... He won it all, making him the first Native American to win an NCAA wrestling championship. What's fascinating about this, though, is while Jack was a champion in his weight class, um, he is not only not the most decorated amateur wrestler on his team at Oklahoma State University, he's not the second most decorated either. Uh, <laughs> his, one of his teammates, Yojiro Uitake, U-E, T-A-K-E, came in first in the 130-pound weight class in both 1964 and 1965 and won Olympic gold medals in 1964 yeah. and 1968 as a bantamweight. And another teammate of Jack's, Bobby Douglas, also competed in the 64 and 68 Olympics, um, and he won the silver medal in 68 as a featherweight. As for the 1965 yeah. NCAA championships, Douglas in the semifinals, I think he accidentally got headbutted uh, by his opponent and knocked out and was unable to continue. But in Jack's book, he says he went to the guy that ended up winning that weight class and got the guy to admit had Bobby Douglas been in the finals, <laughs> D Douglas would have beat him. Douglas went on. Uh, not only did he medal in 1968 Olympics, but he was the captain of the Olympic wrestling team for the United States yeah. in 1968. He ended up coaching at, uh, I think, Iowa State and one other college and is a true legend. So Jack Briscoe, NCAA wrestling champion, is the third yeah. most decorated amateur wrestler on his team. But yeah. he is, of course, the most decorated professional wrestler 
uh, in that class, which actually included a couple of other pro wrestlers uh, from different schools in nineteen in the nineteen sixty five tournament that Briscoe won. Two other future professional wrestlers were in it. One was Bob Ramstead, who also wrestled as Buck Ramstead, and the other, who Briscoe beat earlier on in the tournament, was Larry Lane. Huh. It's funny. A lot of times, and I, I, I'm a lowbrow person with lowbrow taste, and a lot of times in these guys' books, when they talk about the amateur wrestling stuff, I'm like, come on. We got to talk about the amateur wrestling stuff again. Let's get to the let's get to the good stuff here, guys. But the Briscoe, I love listening to him tell these stories. They're fantastic. He, it's it's really interesting. And I'll get, like these stories are crazy. Like I think that that one guy who got headbutted, if I remember correctly, in the match where he accidentally got headbutted, like out on his feet, concussed. I actually think he finished that match and won. And then after, <laughs> which is just insane. Yeah. Like that, and yeah. But after the match, they like no more, no more for you. You got to, you need to go sit in a dark room for a while. But it's just, the, the the stories are fantastic. The amateur wrestling stories in the Briscoe book. There's, it's, it, it, I love the Briscoe book. I think it's you don't hear a lot of people talk about Briscoe's autobiography, and it's one of my favorite autobiographies. It just when you look at his career. And you think of all the people he came in contact with, and how all those interactions, whether whether positive or negative, they all sort of affect his path toward becoming NWA champion, and regarded as one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time. You guys like Danny Hodge, mentor as a friend, this complicated relationship with with the Funk family, um, it, you know Eddie Graham, another complex relationship, um, you know, you know he. he Without Eddie Graham, there might not be Jack Briscoe, NWA heavyweight champion. Um, but, you know, he also calls Eddie the worst payoff man in the business besides Nick Goulis. Um But there's one guy in the book that he talks about that you're, I, I, I'm so surprising to hear him talk about so fondly. Maybe that's just because, like, I'm not used to being hearing him being mentioned in a positive light, either by people within the business or fans. And that's Joe Scarpa, the future chief Jay Strongbow. <laughs> And, I, you know, I think it may have even been Scarper that originally recommended Briscoe to, to Eddie Graham. And at that point, when, when Briscoe comes in, 68, 69, Scarper's already well-established and well-regarded down there, always able to go to bat, you know, so to speak, for Jack when it came to locker room politics or whatever. Um, you know, like if Louis Talley was on Jack's case about something, Scarper would go to Eddie Graham and be like, this kid can make you a lot of money, but if you guys aren't careful, I'll just take him with me to Crockett. And then whatever it was would, would be squashed, um, you know, whereas Jack didn't have the, the stroke or necessarily the, you know, didn't want to make such comments or demands at that point in, in his career. And, and, you know, and Scarpa could be kind of a kind of a dick a lot of the time, you know, but Jack, even at a young age, and this probably comes from being in amateur athletics and dealing with coaches who could be dicks but want the best for you, uh, realized that the advice he was getting was good advice. You know, Scarpa told him, like, take all your amateur trophies, put them away, pack them away. They don't mean anything here. It's kind of harsh, but it, but it worked. And as crazy as it sounds, uh, Joe Scarpa, Chief J. Strongbow, helped Jack Briscoe become better in the ring as a professional wrestler. It seems crazy to say, but it, it's, 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 that's what happened. You know, they, 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 Scarpa would fill Jack in on exactly, you know, if they're working a tag match, how the finish was supposed to go, because, you know, Eddie Graham had these complex finishes, but didn't go exactly that way. Scarper would chew him out and give him like the don't fool with my livelihood kid speech. Um, you know, Joe explained to him how to what drew money, how to fire up, 
how to really sell, uh, about ring psychology. Um, you know, and Jack's comebacks are really what separated him from, from the pack and brought him to the next level. And he learned that all from, from, from Scarpa. You know, he taught him how to react, all that stuff. It's just, uh, he used every possible moment, uh, Scarpa, to, to create, I guess, what we now call, you know, teachable moments. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think what happens a lot, because so much of wrestling history is guarded and secretive, that when we get some nuggets of information, we want to apply that on a larger scale. So obviously there are plenty of stories of people that were not as fond of, of Scarpa as Jack Briscoe yep. was. So I think when those stories come out, people will then weave their own narrative and say, well, if these people didn't like him, then nobody must have liked him. Or at least yeah. there's no, there's nothing on paper or on, you know, the internet about people liking him. So the only stories I've seen are people disliking him. Therefore, you know, everyone must have. Yeah. And that's something we're going to talk about a little later when we talk about uh, when we play our interview with Gil Culkin. It's another case mm -hmm. of people taking one small fact and attempting to apply it uh, on a larger canvas. And, and it's just yeah. simply not true. So, who you know, whatever we have heard about Joe Scarpa, do know that there are at least there's at least one wrestler and probably more <laughs> that uh, were not only spoke highly of him, but became better because of Scarpa. So just keep yeah. that in mind. And we're talking about the NCAAs. Um, Briscoe had actually uh, made contact with Leroy McGurk a few weeks prior to the 1965 tournament. And Leroy pretty much offered uh, right then and there to train him once wrestling season was over. So, and Jack said his training consisted of working out with various wrestlers in the Cimarron Arena, which was actually a ballroom in Tulsa. Uh, they ran it Monday nights, and Jack said he would work out Monday afternoons with the wrestlers before the show. And he did that for either a few weeks or several weeks before that match we mentioned uh, with Ronnie Garvin. And if you want to see Jack winning the NCAAs in 1965. There's a uh, video only, no audio, but video footage on YouTube. And it, it's just fascinating to see uh, something from uh, 56 years ago yeah. uh, on, on YouTube. It, it's actually amazing. You also referenced earlier a live chat that Jack had done with Slam Wrestling uh, back in 2001, but the complete transcript is available on their site. Tim Hornbaker, of course, has a very nice profile of him uh, on the Legacy of Wrestling site. There's a magazine article from 1969. The March 1969 issue of Wrestling Review had an article on Jack, and on the cover, they bill him as the new gotch. Um, but the article talks about his uh, stint down under in Australia. Yeah, and there's some great, great photos of, of young Jack there. Uh, yeah, and he wrestles. Uh, he wrestles uh, Johnny Boyd, who is, of course, the future Lord Jonathan Boyd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see the uh, the uh, the tattoos there. If you want to ID, you could ID him from the uh, tattoos. Yeah. So this is this is uh, you know not even four years after his debut, and he's already being pushed hard in the magazines, getting a tour of Australia. So let's talk about the timing. This was the March 1969 issue of Wrestling Review, and based on Jack's career record, this Australia tour would have had to have been his first tour, which was from September to December of 1968. He came back later in '69, but uh, for this article to be written in the March 69 issue of Wrestling Review. It talks about something that happened 
several months earlier. So it's not a several-year delay like we saw with the article on Dennis Bockwinkle, but it's still a little bit of a delay from when it happens to press time. And again, that's why these articles, they don't mention dates. Um, you know, they just say recently he stepped in the ring with so-and-so, uh, and they don't put a date on it. And to a wrestling fan in Oklahoma, they have no idea what's going on in Australia. So they just assume it happened recently. Um, of course, Jack passed away in 2010 and the news reverberated across the online wrestling community. Even Jimmy Valiant's website mentioned his passing with some quotes from Boogie himself and, uh, ending with a great line that you pointed out to me, John, but it says, quote, the Boogie Jam online website staff offers our sincere, heartfelt condolences to Jack Briscoe's family and friends during this time of loss. It's good to know that the Boogie Jam online website staff had Jack's back. And even, uh, we talk about Jack Briscoe, but Jerry Briscoe uh, recently was uh, peripherally involved in a story uh, that came out uh, written by my friend uh, David Bixenspan about Pat Patterson and the uh, government's investigation into him and trying to get him deported because of his uh, sexual preference. It's a really fascinating read. Uh, but one of the uh, interesting results of Bix posting this article was uh, that JBL uh, and Jerry Briscoe had Bix on their podcast to talk about this article. So the yeah. article actually mended fences because I think JBL and Bix had uh, really were not, I think JBL was not pretty fond of Bix. Uh, until this article came out. So sometimes doing wrestling research and history can mend fences. So, um, but yeah, that article, did you get to read it? I haven't read it yet. That's on my, uh, it's, on, my I mean, on my list. It's, yeah, it is wild to see the lengths that the government went to to try and uncover dirt on uh, Canadian-based wrestlers. Yeah. And, and and if they're doing it for Pat Patterson, they're probably doing it for so many other athletes, yeah. entertainers. I mean, it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's really a fascinating read. And it probably explains why, for most of his career, Pat, while not denying things, was not very open about his personal life and it wasn't until much 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 later that you know he would he would throw out some few things in passing again not publicly necessarily coming out but you know not trying to hide it either and and letting you know listeners or readers of interviews sort of jump to their own conclusions there's uh, so much stuff out there on jack briscoe we're going to post some links to YouTube matches. Uh, there's plenty of matches of Jack. There's plenty of matches of Bobby Shane. And there's even a couple of them against one another that are out there. So we will uh, put all those out on Twitter. But yeah, second quarter of 1965 was interesting because, as I mentioned, Hodge leaves. You have a couple of very big heavyweights in Tiny Smith and Ike Eakins. Uh, and you have a feud over a hunting dog. So a lot going on, plus these two big debuts that wraps up our coverage of second quarter of 1965. You can see our spot ratings and other statistics and listings for all known house shows on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. And now let's move forward. Let's uh, jump ahead a good 16 years to the fourth quarter of 1981 in Mid-South Wrestling. Maybe. And of course, if you subscribe to Peacock, or if you're outside of the U.S. and subscribe to the WWE Network, the Mid-South Wrestling TV episodes that are on 
uh, those services begin in December 1981. So we're, we've now caught up to the point where the TV episodes are very easily available. I think uh, some of the TV from earlier in 81 can be found if you look hard enough. But uh, if you've got Peacock or the WWE Network, you can see, I, I think it's every week from uh, 1981, uh, at least through 84, 85. Uh, there's a, a great podcast that reviews these weekly TV shows. It's the Mid-South Wrestling Review, hosted by Mike Mills and Brian Last. So you can check those out at midsouthpod.com. So, John, what are your takeaways? You've seen 1976 UWA TV recently. How does that compare to the December 1981 Mid-South Wrestling Television? I got to say, I... I, 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 uh, As biased as I am to the, the UWA, having, you know been intimately familiar with it for a period of uh, well, nearly three weeks now. <laughs> I love, uh, I love it. Like early eighties, mid South TV. It's, I remember when it first came on the, the, the WWE network where it was easily watchable, even the, you know, you know, duping tapes or sending DVDs to people. Um, I would always recommend the mid South to people who uh, mid South TV to people who had never seen it before. Um, it is probably the most, I, I find it to be the most bingeable of TV wrestling from that era. You can sit down and, and, and binge on it the way you, you go and you watch an old TV series again. And, and, and it's in, very rewatchable. In many cases, you, you almost need to binge watch them because so much of what Watts does with the booking uh, is based on things that happened previously. And, uh, you know, back then we didn't have as many t uh, as many distractions, as many TV shows to follow. So it was probably easier to keep track watching it weekly. But now to watch them, you know, to binge watch them, you really get to see, oh, OK, this. So this ties into what happened, you know, six months ago or, you know, even yeah. even longer than that. Uh, you're talking about how Murdoch and DiBiase had been aligned, uh, you know, for a decade. They when one or both of them were in the territory, they're talking about how DiBiase is a protege of Murdoch. And it all comes full circle in 1984 with the big angle with uh, Flair and DiBiase. So it's just yep. very intricately booked and put together. And what's so fascinating about Mid-South is the size of the crew, because as we get to the fourth quarter of 1981, there are literally just three full-time main event babyfaces and three full-time main event heels. Uh, if you recall in the third quarter, which we covered a few months ago, Bob Roop and Bob Orton debuted and Mike George returned. As we move into the fall, Jim Garvin is finishing up before going to Florida and then Georgia, and George slips into his role as an upper mid-card babyface. The Samoans leave for a New Japan tour, and Roop and Orton pretty much take their spot. So you end up with Roop, Orton, and Paul Orndorff as a faction on the heel side, and uh, Ernie Ladd, I believe, is, if not their actual manager, is affiliated with them. He had been managing the Samoans, but with the Samoans leaving, uh, they, they plug Ladd into this role with the new top heel group. And they're feuding with babyfaces Junkyard Dog, Ted DiBiase, and Mike George. Uh, Ladd gets in the ring on a part-time basis. You also have Dusty Rhodes and Great Kabuki coming in periodically, part-time Kabuki coming in from, I believe, Texas, and Dusty coming in from wherever he's at. Um, but they're mostly wrestling one another. So the top of the cards are pretty much various combinations of JYD, DiBiase, and Mike George against 
Roop, Orton, and Orndorff, usually with uh, two of them, you know, four of them in a tag match and two of them in a singles match. Yeah. It's interesting. I think the uh, yeah with the, the, the Samoans on that on that TV, uh, they they were you know uh, in Japan in, in reality on on the, that TV from that era. I think there there's like a suspension angle that yeah. they're running. And if I remember correctly on TV, it's like will will Ernie Ladd manage the, the Samoans Afa and Sika upon their return? Will he manage the Samoan Warriors again? Uh, and it's uh yeah it's good the early and i love the early 80 or the early 80s tv because they had like especially this era because you have the rotating co-host yes. uh yeah <laughs> one episode you've got ernie ladd who was just i think ernie ladd is great in that role um and he's like i don't like the junkyard dog but he's a tough tough man yeah. uh and then you have like diviasi the next week and then then watts the next week and it's 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 really it's it's, ah, it's such it's i love watching it i love going back and watching this stuff yeah it's it's really good stuff and you know i guess you know by this point in time so we're you know now in late 81 so the split happened two years ago and i think watts has enough confidence in his booking and in his crew to not have that depth at the top of the cards, uh, looking at the roster by spot ratings, uh, the top stars in descending order, JYD, Orndorff, DiBiase, the Samoans, Dusty, Kabuki, Mike George, Bob Orton Jr., Bob Roop, and Jim Garvin. And then beneath them, slotted in the mid cards, is the Iron Sheik. And Sheik is managed by Skandor Akbar. And this is Akbar's first appearance for Mid-South Wrestling. Uh, when the split huh. occurred, he uh, went to work for Leroy McGurk, who was running the northern part of the former territory, running Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri. Uh, and he was pretty much the glue in that territory for the first two years of its existence. He was managing the heels. He was wrestling... Uh, at various times, he's a part-time wrestler. At various other times, he seems to be wrestling full-time. Um, but he really was the key to keeping that territory afloat after the mm. split with Watts. Uh, so this is the first time wrestling fans in Louisiana and Mississippi would have seen him in about two years. Um, Iron Sheik is being pushed, but definitely not at the level of Orton, Roop, and Orndorff. And on the TVs that we see on the network in December – Paul Ellering shows up. He's not working the house shows yet, but he works a few TVs and they put him into a program with the Iron Sheik. Mm, Persian clubs, baby, doing the challenge. Yeah, the old uh, Persian clubs <laughs> challenge. Um, John, I've uh, I worked a couple of shows with the Iron Sheik uh, years ago oh. up in New Jersey. Oh, you? And you're darn tootin'. Oh. I went to pick up those clubs and I got to tell you, I have no idea how anyone can rotate that thing once <laughs> wow um what, what, you know, they really, are they I, wooden? You know, what are they i know they're a gimmick and i know it's a deal but they really truly are very hard to do in in the way the you that the persian club challenge plays out on tv it definitely takes some uh very specific skill set i think it, it just it works muscles in a way that no other exercise works them 
So you sort of have to learn a new thing. Uh, I guess just like uh, me with the Rubik's Cube, which is my quarantine (laughs) skill that I learned. I've been able to get my time up from several minutes down to under 90 seconds. I think just, you know, repetition and and, uh, is the key. So in the case of the Persian Club Challenge, uh, you know, the Sheik had been working with those for years. But we also have a title change in the fourth quarter of 1981 on November 1st. DiBiase wins the North American title from Orndorff. And all this does is allows them to shuffle up the feuds at the top of the cards. Whereas it had been DiBiase versus Orndorff and then JYD and George versus Orton and Roop or the Samoans. Now the regular tag team on the heel side switches to Orndorff and Orton and they uh, take Roop out of the tag team feud and put him into the singles feud with DiBiase. And you can learn more about who was feuding with whom and who was teaming with whom on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. Now, further down the cards, the list of preliminary wrestlers features a lot of recognizable names. And like we said, they're not carrying a lot of main eventers on the roster, but they do have quite a bit of preliminary wrestlers, usually the first half of the house shows feature these guys. So guys such as Brian Blair, Ken Mantell, Jesse Barr, Frank Monty, Tony Charles, Kim Duck, and Carl Fergie are among those working the opening matches on the house shows. We also have Rick Ferrara as a preliminary heel, which is interesting because Rick Ferrara had spent many years here as babyface Igor Putsky. Uh, but he leaves and he's only gone for like a year and they bring him back, and he's now he's just Rick Ferrara, and he's a heel. And as best as we can tell, there's no acknowledgement. They present him as a completely different person yeah. entirely. Uh, but we also have the debut of a man who would be later known for many colorful characters and controversial <laughs> characters. But here he's just a uh, regular old guy by the name of Ed. So this is Ed, Ed. Wiskowski. Easy Ed. Uh, early, yes, early in his Ed career Ed. is Easy Ed. He's smiling <laughs> Ed. He's a babyface <laughs> earlier in his career, particularly when he wrestles in central states because he grew up in St. Joseph, Missouri. Um, yep. But Ed, sometimes the name is shortened to Wiskowski instead of Wiskowski. Yep. And when he worked for Goulas, I guess Goulas didn't quite know how to pronounce either of those names, so he just called him Ed Kowalski. Oh, okay. Fair enough. I mean, you know, and I guess that way you can perhaps uh, infer a relationship to one uh, to one of the famous Kowalskis, either Killer or Stan. Well, maybe one famous and one semi-famous Kowalski. Ed took on some interesting personas over the course of his career Uh, in Florida in 1982. He was Mongoose Derek Draper. Yeah. I don't know if this is because he had a pet mongoose that would be put on the line in matches. Is is this a prize hunting mongoose? I don't know if <laughs> mongooses can hunt. But he also had a very brief stint as in two TV tapings. And I think that's it in the WWF as the Polish prince managed by Freddie Blassie. There's one clip that I found of him. There's a whole you can find all that TV on, on YouTube or whatever. Uh, I found there's one clip that I found of an individual match of his. As his finisher, he uses like a sharpshooter scorpion deathlock type move, which I thought was fascinating. In 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 1983, using that. Uh, so I wonder if I wonder if that was a you know backstage Pat Patterson, you know, like hey, you need a you need a finish there, kid. Here you go. 
Yeah. So I wonder, I always wonder about how that, how that happened there. Cause I've never seen him use it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, other than that. Which, Do we know, has so there, have there been any stories about why this stint didn't work out? I don't know. I haven't heard no. any, 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 any scuttlebutt about why. It's not so un- funny not because unusual for the W. Sorry. Yeah, the the W. I was just going to say the WWF, WWF had more starts and stops like this than anybody. Um, I'm thinking of the yeah. Freebirds in '86. Uh, yep. Uh, where they came in, worked some TVs, worked a couple of house shows, and then quit. Um, any other examples that you can think of? Ox Baker. Okay. Um, yeah, I think Ox Baker was. Ach-Bar. I mean, he was there. With, yeah, 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 we talked about one, Akbar yeah. several uh, months ago on the podcast. He uh, comes yeah. in, and I, I guess, I guess he was shorter than they thought he was going to be. Uh, I think yeah. that that's the only explanation I can think of, uh, because Akbar yeah. obviously very muscular, very built, very strong, but he doesn't quite look like all the other monster heels in the WWF at the time. So perhaps they just took one look at him in person and said, "Never mind." Um, yeah, and to and, an extent, yeah. Piper, Piper's seventies run, you know, where they brought him in, you know, and they were going to have him do a uh, like a program with uh, with Backlund, uh, and I guess they, you know, they put the kibosh on that. Yeah. Um. So his his run. So yeah. There's like, but the, the Oxbaker one is always the one stands out to me, and it's like, I mean, I love the I love that era of WWF. I know it's not great, um, but Ox now, fits perfectly. Yes. And I'm just like, how, I mean, it couldn't have been like the in-ring. So you've seen, watch that TV. The in-ring shouldn't be a problem. Why, why someone is, is, is like, no, not asked back. Like in, in-ring work should not be yeah. <laughs> a, a box that should be checked because like there's some terrible, terrible wrestling. Um, so I'm always interested in what the, what the actual story is behind those things. But uh, yeah, only a couple, a couple TV taping for, uh, for Ed. Yes. But um uh, and besides Colonel De Beers, and I, I just I'm because everybody knows about Colonel De Beers, I don't want to talk about that, but I do want to talk about uh the Mega Maharishi in Portland. Yes. And this As do I. and this was based on uh real world news events that happened in Oregon. Yeah. This is the Rajneesh Puram, which is a religious sect, aka cult that sort of settled into this small town in Oregon and literally took over the town. They, they basically brought in enough uh, members of this sect to uh, win the elections, uh, get all their people on the town council. <laughs> they renamed the town. Uh, and this was, you know, I was a little too young to really focus on the national news other than, you know, the big stories of Reagan getting shot or whatever. But this was pretty big news on a nationwide basis. And certainly in Oregon, it was huge. Looking through uh, the Portland newspaper, even the Washington State newspapers, there was almost daily coverage of mm-hmm. the attempts of this religious sect to take over the town. And of course, uh, to the surprise of no one, it ends up uh, becoming a tale of sex and drugs and weapons and all <laughs> sorts of uh, other things going on just besides a spiritual commune. Um, but Ed yeah. uh, built upon this and created the character of the Mega Maharishi uh, in the ring in Portland, Oregon. So John, uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts of Ed Wiskowski and the Mega Maharishi. Yeah, it's like if you haven't seen him uh, before, you know, it's 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 
it was a cult leader type gimmick. He had the robes and the whole thing. But like you said, like why is it what makes this nuts is like it was based on a real life cult leader who was actually living at this time in Oregon. Um, the Netflix. Did you mention the documentary, the Wild Wild Country documentary? I uh, know, but yeah, if, uh, to our listeners that might not be familiar with the Rajneesh Puram, there's a documentary on Netflix entitled Wild Wild Country that does a yeah. really good job of summing up the situation. Uh, and they actually interview one of the main characters in the documentary was uh, the leader's uh, right hand woman uh, for yeah. much of the time. And- so yeah. What's why people to understand why this may have generated heat, why people in the Pacific Northwest may have been sensitive to this gimmick is that this guy or his followers throughout the late summer, early autumn of 1984 uh, allegedly perpetrated a bioterror attack on the people of Wascow County, Oregon, for the purpose of incapacitating the voting population so that their own candidates would win the county elections. And they did this by, I don't know how you do this, uh, purchasing salmonella bacteria from a medical supply company and then like grew it, cultured it in like their lab in their commune. And they would go to like, this is, that sounds so crazy when you, when you say it, they would go to salad bars in grocery stores and restaurants and spray the produce or, you know, introduce it into the salad dressing, put on doorknobs, the Intr- and like introduce other- it to the salad dressing. <laughs> Hello, Hidden Valley Ranch. My name is Salmonella. It's very nice to meet you. Let's merge. <laughs> Hello, wife and kids. Uh, they put it on doorknobs in the courthouse and other municipal buildings. You know, and by like by the end of September, the '84, there's something like 750 reported cases of you know gastroenteritis <laughs> in the area. You know, and I think it was the first and still is the the singest single largest bioterrorist attack in the United States. Um, so that's, you know, you can see why that gimmick would be, be, be a heat, a heat getter. Uh, you know, I can almost imagine like Ed Wisconsky, like at the end of this run here and he's like, Oh man, I'm so glad to be done with that gimmick. There's like, got a lot of heat there with this cult leader and the bioterror and the salmonella and the diarrhea. Can't wait to go wrestle for Vern. You know, he just likes plain old-fashioned wrestling. Yeah, sure. Well, so was it Vern? And then, <laughs> was it Vern that came up with De Beers for him? Yeah, I could imagine Vern. Like, hey, have you heard of this Nelson Mandela guy? I got an idea for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like out of the frying pan into the fire with the uh, over-the-top <laughs> yes. heat gimmicks. Um, but yeah, the Mega Maharishi, uh, he, you can tell he's having fun with it. And yeah. a lot of the stuff I've seen with uh, him as Colonel De Beers, he he does a good job with it, but he's more perfunctory with. It. He's like I don't, you know, you almost get a sense of he's not overly fond of the gimmick, but he understands that it's his job yeah. to do it. Whereas earlier yeah. in his career in these other roles, he seems to be more, you know, having fun with the roles. Yeah, we were looking it's at the John Nugent's show. Yeah, you did you did some research into his college days and even his high school days, but he played football and he also was on uh competed in track and field. He was a a shot putter. And what's interesting, and we'll we'll post these articles, but what I found most interesting about it was that these were dated between nineteen sixty two and nineteen sixty six. So he's in college at as in at and you know, one of his four years of college was in nineteen sixty six. And Ed didn't turn pro, uh, didn't turn pro wrestler until 1972. 
So there's actually a several-year gap between his college days and his wrestling career. So uh, using that info, I decided to dig a little further and see if we could find what Ed Wiskowski was doing um, in his early 20s before becoming a pro wrestler. And we found some mildly interesting stuff. Uh, the first one I found was from the May 29th, 1969 Maryville, Missouri Daily Forum, where Ed was named assistant manager for a brand new pizza hut opening yeah, in the town. So uh, the manager uh, and owner is a gentleman by the name of Herb Kent, but Kent and assistant manager Ed Wiskoski direct 11 other part-time employees at the Pizza Hut. Wiskoski, a 1969 graduate of Northwest State College, was a member of Sigma Tau Gamma fraternity and participated in varsity football and track activities. Uh, he's, uh, he's a bachelor and a member of oh, the Air uh, National hello, Guard. Wow. So that was 1969. Was, uh... And a week later, um, there's an article. No, I'm sorry. A few months later, there's an article in St. Joseph, Missouri, from September 1969, talking about Wiskoski training to be a pro wrestler. So even though his first match wasn't until 1972, he started training in 1969. And I don't know if this... Uh, might explain the gap, but uh, he was in a automobile accident in December of 1969, um, where hmm. he was treated for a knee injury and internal injuries. So it is quite possible that that injury sort of delayed his wrestling career, but it's also possible that his quote unquote day job interfered as well, because in September of 1969, he uh, took a job with the neighborhood youth corps to serve as a coordinator in that uh, in that program. And the neighborhood youth corps was a nationwide program first started in 1965 that provided vocational and educational training to increase the employability of out of school youth. And actually, for the next several years, there are several mentions of him uh, being involved in similar um, goals. There's a uh, he's a member of a task force um, in, that recommended establishment of a halfway house for paroled youngsters from the state training schools uh, and the establishment of an educational program for parolees or youth on probation and the establishment of a job bank. Um, huh. In 1971, he's on a group talking about setting up a job bank for youths on parole. So he has a, you know, what seemingly is a pretty worthy job early on in his life. And and let's, of course, say that given that he later wrestled as Colonel De Beers, it's very interesting to see him serving as uh, someone who's helping, um, you know, uh, school dropouts and, and prison parolees, yeah. helping them get work. Uh, there, there's a little bit of a, di a dichotomy going on between those two phases of his life. But the athlete in Ed never left because during this time, uh, he is playing some slow pitch softball. Uh, we actually found a couple of articles of him, uh, his, his softball exploit. So he was very active athletically early in his life. And his first pro wrestling match was September 19th, 1972 in Sedalia, Missouri against his trainer, Ronnie Etchison. He wrestled Ronnie again a couple of weeks later in Waterloo, Iowa, and then went to Florida for about six months. So 
I guess given that he's a local guy and, and might have even been known around St. Joseph as someone who is active in the community and also in athletics, they decided to uh, give his first couple of matches in the territory, but then send him away for experience. Yep. Because when he comes back to this territory, I believe in 73, uh, he, he you know, is brought in first as a babyface and has given a nice little push up the cards. Just like Mike George, the same thing happened with him. He was also from yep. St. Joseph. So they really did a very good job of slowly bringing him along and moving him up the cards as a local hometown product. You uh, you, you mentioned training with, with Ronnie Etchison. Speaking of... Just quick sidebar here. Speaking of training, you know, we all know we all Wikipedia is Wikipedia. You got to take it with a grain of salt. Do your own research, uh, you know. And uh, you know, on Wikipedia, I remember reading this a few years ago, lists his trainers as Harley Race and Lord Littlebrook. Yes. Um, so I remember reading a bunch of articles over the years claiming that Lee Littlebrook trained to beer. That was like, so I was thinking this had to be somebody goofing around, like someone this can't be factual information. This has to be like Buddy Rose messing with with Ed from Beyond the Grave, <laughs> editing his Wikipedia page for Goose. I started looking into it further a few years ago, and I found, you know, there's like a, a speech or an article from when Ed was being honored at the Cauliflower Alley Club back in the early 2000s. And he went out of his way to, to gush and thank Lord Littlebrook. So I'm I'm wondering if if Littlebrook and Ronnie Etchison worked out worked out of the same gym or something because there are a few guys that are listed as being trained by, among others, Ronnie Etchison and Lord Littlebrook. One of them, uh, Butch Reed. Butch Reed, <laughs> one of them. Yeah. So uh, here's DJ what here's what I know is that um, Etchison was training wrestlers uh, in St. Joseph, Missouri, and Lord Littlebrook was training wrestlers. Uh, a lot of times he trained fellow uh, little persons, but uh, clearly others as well. I don't know for a fact if they were working in the same facility, but it makes sense that they would uh, combine their resources. Uh, one of the interesting things about the Heart of America Territory, uh, which is another territory I've done a lot of research on, is that uh, the Little People's Troop is based out of Missouri, so they are very frequently booked on Heart of America shows. And unlike in other territories where they come in for two weeks at a time or a week at a time or a month at a time, here it's almost on an as-needed basis um, because they're all they're probably all living uh, in, you know, in and around the area. So it's just if you've got, you know, if, if you got some of them that are not booked elsewhere in other territories, sure, we can use them for a spot show here or there um, and, and, you know, filling in some gaps. The same thing with the women wrestlers. They have uh, a very small group of women wrestlers based out of Missouri. It's Betty Nicoli, Jean Antone, uh, Princess Partlow, and Kay Noble. And so again, in central states, they don't come in for two weeks at a time. It's just uh, whenever you need it, if you've got a spot town booked, we'll, we'll just bring in a mixed tag or bring in all four women if they're, if they're in the area, not booked elsewhere. So, but yeah, Lord Littlebrook uh, trained, Butch frickin' Reed and Ed frickin' Wiskowski, which is wild to think about. But I love how you at first thought that there was Buddy Rose messing with Ed because that does absolutely sound like something Buddy would do, would be to uh, go into Ed's Wikipedia page and say, oh, he was trained by Lord Littlebrook. <laughs> and Littlebrook was uh, sort of like the, the fabulous moolah 
of the the, the little people, right? Not not the, not the bad part of him, uh, <laughs> but just. In- so so you're saying he's all the good parts of Fabulous Moolah. Uh, what are those good parts, John? What what are the good parts of Fabulous Moolah? Her her beautiful beautiful eyes. Well, no, um, the uh, yeah, I think he, he so was he's like the, the anti Moolah. Yeah, he he booked them. Well, I don't know about him. I mean, actually, I've heard some some not so great stuff about oh, Little Buck Um But he he booked them all. He booked them. Like he was the guy who would book them out. Correct? Is that my, yeah, my yes. incorrect? Yes. You're correct. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny. Like uh, I'm not saying Lord Littlebrook was Billy Robinson or anything. And I'm not going to tell anybody to go like do a deep dive on Lord Littlebrook like I did earlier this week. Um, you know, but if you want to watch Lord Littlebrook versus Bobo Johnson on March 28th, 1975 in Houston, it's a great freaking match. Um, and Lord Littlebrook is like, not all the time, some of the time he, in his matches, he abstains from doing a lot of the, like the sillier kind of like goofy little kid spots that Vince McMahon like, and like a lot of his matches are sort of just like working the same style as a regular match. And he's, he's not doing the biting the ref's butt or spinning Tiger Jackson on his head. He's working in a regular match. So it it made more sense after I watched some of his matches. Like, oh, this guy's just like working regular matches. He's not doing like goofy, a lot of the goofy yeah. typical spots there. So I, yeah, I, wonder, little book deep I wonder how much of that has to do with where they're working. Like if, if Vince wanted the goofy stuff and Paul Bosch did not, which, yeah. and both yeah. those situations seem perfectly reasonable. It would make sense that both of those things are true. Yeah. So that might have something to do with it, but uh, yeah, the little work, you know, knew what to what was expected of him, and probably because of that, made a very good trainer. So yeah, Ed Wiskowski, a very colorful man, uh, considering his most famous gimmick was uh, one that was not fond of colors. It's interesting <laughs> to see the uh, colorful career and colorful life. He had both in and out of wrestling. Um, Also in our coverage of 1981 on the blog, we look at the feud between Junkyard Dog and Mike George and Bob Orton Jr. and Paul Orndorff. And as we get into the 80s, this is the point in time where a lot of the Mid-South, a lot of the newspapers that covered Mid-South wrestling did not list results. Um, However... Because we're in the 80s and there are, are fans, you know, attending shows that are still around today, a lot of those results have made their way onto the web. But what's interesting is that when you look at this, these feuds on a town-by-town basis, if, for example, we have results uh, for all the, the shows in Shreveport, but not in other towns, sometimes we can see patterns emerge. For example, if in Shreveport they started with a non-title match that the Heels won, which then built to a title match, which ended in a disqualification, which then led to a no-disqualification match, which the Babyfaces won. Let's say another town, say Monroe, Louisiana, where we don't have results, if we know the second match was a title match and the third match was a no-disqualification match, we can sort of infer that what happened in that town was probably very similar to what happened in Shreveport. So, John, I'll ask you, let's say we have uh, some house show listings and we don't have results. Let's say there's a uh, a world junior heavyweight title match between, let's say, Danny Hodge and Jack Donovan. And we don't have results, but the next week they have a rematch with a 90-minute time limit. John, what do you think the finish of the first match was? Well, it was probably a, 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 an hour Broadway. Yeah, almost certainly. So as much as, as much as people want to know results, 
of wrestling shows. I don't want to say they don't matter. I would say what happened during a wrestling match or during the main matches of a wrestling show are important, but they're really not vital. And I think looking at the spot rating, if, if, you know, if, for example, you want to know who won a match, so you would know who's getting pushed. Well, the spot rating does a better job of doing that because remember heels, once they get built up to main event status, they're losing more than half of their matches. But as long as they're still booked in main events, that tells you where they're sort of slotted on the cards in a better way than wins and losses can. And so we use that information. And again, we're using common sense and and deduction. Uh, Like with the example I just gave you, John, you don't need to know the result to know that if the following week had a 90-minute time limit, you're almost certainly sure that they went to a time limit draw the week before. So that's sort of the, 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 the skills that I'm trying to teach our listeners and wrestling historians and also wrestling fans as you follow along um, with the results. And sometimes the newspapers didn't list detailed results. If we know this guy beat this guy, we can't assume it was by pinfall just because the newspaper didn't say by disqualification. Sometimes we have very detailed descriptions of not only the disqualification, but why and what happened and who ran in and all this and that. But sometimes they just say, Wrestler A beat wrestler B, wrestler C beat wrestler D, wrestler E drew wrestler F. And we sort of assume that those are pinfall wins, and they're not. And of course, if a heel wins a match against an equally slotted babyface, just because they pinned them doesn't mean it was clean. And in fact, I'd be willing to bet it wasn't clean. So that's sort of the... uh, things that we're learning as we go along and chart these territories. And I also like to chart other territories from time to time. It helps me make sure that my methodology is valid because uh, if it, you know, if everything looks right in the McGurk territory, but not in others, there's something wrong. But so I decided to reach out to the wonderful folks at the Mid-Atlantic Gateway, Dick Bourne, Dave Chappell, and uh, they gave me a whole bunch of house show data from Mid-Atlantic in 1973, and we went ahead and charted that territory. And one of the coolest things about wrestling, John, is so this month we've covered 1965 and 1981. And now that we're going to go to 1973 in a different territory, several wrestlers who we've already spoken about in either 65 or 81 are in Mid-Atlantic in 1973, and that's Ronnie Garvin, Bobby Shane, Bob Roop, Frank Monty, and Ed Wiskowski. And even Jack Briscoe makes some appearances as well. So uh, this is right before George Scott takes over as Booker, so it's still primarily a tag team territory. And you can see on the blog where we list everyone's uh, frequent partners, you've basically got a heel tag team of Ole and Gene Anderson. You've got Jonathan Boyd and Norman Charles. You've got Rip Hawk and Swede Hansen, although at some point Swede gets injured and Bobby Shane takes his place. Then we have Jay York and Brute Bernard and Frank Monty and Mike York. So you have both Jay and Mike York, but they're with different partners during this time. Uh, On the babyface side, you have Jerry Briscoe teaming with Thunderbolt Patterson. You have Johnny Weaver teaming with Art Nelson. You have Nelson Royal teaming with Sandy Scott, 
And then a little further down, you have Scott Casey. Uh, sometimes he's teaming up with Amazing Zuma, who's Argentina Zuma, who, of course, we mentioned earlier in this podcast. And he's also teaming up a little bit with Big Boy Brown, who is Luke Brown, who uh, also teamed with Tiny Smith as the Kentuckians. You also have Les Thatcher. We mentioned him earlier. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a mid-card heel tag team of Joe Turner and Bill Bowman, who I believe are actually related and one of them is the uh, is uh, related by I think marriage to Dennis Condry. Huh. So yeah, all sorts of relations going on. Uh, but on the <laughs> blog, we look at uh, a couple of the feuds going on. We have Art Nelson and Johnny Weaver feuding with Jonathan Boyd and Norman Charles, the Royal Kangaroos, plus Nelson Royal and Sandy Scott feuding with the Alaskans, Frank Monty and Mike York. Also uh, during this quarter, Joe Lewis came in as a special referee for a few dates in September. So they were really loading up the cards. So we mentioned, John, that Sandy Scott is teaming with Nelson Royal. Sandy's brother, George, was wrestling in East Texas at this time. And according to an article on Slam Wrestling written by Greg Oliver, George broke his back during a match. And his 20-year-plus career in the ring was on the verge of being over. Uh, But according to Greg John Ringley who was married to Jim Crockett Sr.'s daughter, Frances, and had taken over behind the scenes after Sr. passed away in April of 1973. Ringley was the one who reached out to George and asked him to come back to Charlotte and, quote, help out. And the rest, as they say, is history. Because in the fourth quarter, George uh, starts getting his fingerprints on what's going on in the Mid-Atlantic Territory. And we see the first two steps in the changes that George Scott would make. And of course, everyone credits Johnny Valentine uh, as being the big acquisition. But before Valentine, there's another uh, major acquisition, newcomer to the territory that uh, gets a big push. And I don't want to spoil things, hint, 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 but we'll talk about that uh, later on in December on the podcast. Uh, We talked about 1981 earlier. Uh, We talked about Junkyard Dog being the big star in the Louisiana and Mississippi uh, region of the United States because of Bill Watts' Mid-South Wrestling. And that brings us to part three of my interview with Gil Culkin, which I conducted several months ago. I want to say this interview was done specifically to get Gil's side of, of a story that has permeated the internet. And in really trying to trace back to its origins, I really went through everything that both Jim Cornette and Jim Ross had had put out on the record uh, in their talkings about George Culkin and in particular the situation with the junkyard dog. And in both cases, while while both of the Jims, Cornette and Ross, uh, seemed to say there was an issue between George Culkin and the junkyard dog... Neither of them said anything about George not wanting to book black wrestlers in general. Uh, However, what happens, it's, John, it's kind of like the game of telephone. Uh, And this is what, you know, uh, something we talked about earlier with Joe Scarpa. People see one thing, one fact, one statement that someone said, and attempt to apply it to others. So what has happened over time is... Um, so, so according to Jim Ross, the story was there was an apparent and alleged incident with Junkyard Dog uh, where George ended up demanding JYD be fired and refusing to book him. 
Now, first off, the evidence in this, again, realize I've looked at house show records. This is not true. There may very well have been an incident and George may very well have not liked it. But as far as demanding JYD be fired or refusing to book him, even though he drew big houses, there's no evidence of that. But what happens is the story changed and evolved over time. And it became George Culkin refused to book black wrestlers, period. And this is absolutely not true. And we can prove this by going back, not only looking when George was the local promoter for Leora McGurk in the early 70s, but from 1977 to 1979, when George and his son Gil had their own territory, were the bosses and had absolute say in what wrestlers their booker, Frankie Kane, could use. Not only are they booking black wrestlers, they are booking more black wrestlers than any territory in the South at the time and using them in numerous different roles, not just as the upper mid-card level babyface, but main event babyfaces, main event heels, preliminary babyfaces, preliminary heels. They are using black wrestlers up and down the cards. And just like several months ago where we talked about the interview with Mike McGurk, that Jerry Briscoe and JBL did on their YouTube page, I think it's important for wrestling fans and historians to get every different party's side of all these stories. And from there, I can't force anyone to make their own conclusion, but hopefully hearing all these different stories will allow them to form an opinion on what they believe really happened. So that's really why I wanted to do this interview with Gil Culkin. So let's go uh, to that right now, part three of my interview with Gil Culkin. I want to now switch focus and go back in time. And this is the next part of my interview with Gil Culkin, who wrote the Mississippi Wrestling Territory, The Untold Story, which you can find on Amazon. It's a, if you're interested in some of the smaller territories that operated in the 1970s, I just finished reading a book by Dean Silverstone, who ran a small territory in Washington State in the 70s. And, and this is very similar story to that in that, uh, you guys went on your own and, and did well for a couple of years and just, things sort of happened that made it time to move on. But I want to go back to before uh, you had your own territory, when you were still working as the local promoters for Leroy McGurk, because one of the things that I see a lot of is a description of the bookers in the early seventies, not so before 1975 um, where it's been said that Bill Watts was booking the towns in Oklahoma and Little Rock and that Grizzly Smith was booking the towns in Louisiana. Was there a specific booker assigned to the towns in Mississippi? Did George have any say in what wrestlers were used? Or did you just say, we've got three shows this week. Tell us who you're sending down. Uh, pretty much. It's, we got involved a little bit, or my father did a little bit in, in the way things were going to go, but Usually they had a booker, like I said, Bill. Uh, it was several that came through. Uh, a bit, they would change up from time to time. Bill would assign someone else to be a booker. Uh, Grizzly was helping book for a while. Uh, Bill Dundee came in was a booker for a while. Yeah, uh, Dundee came in in 84, which was one of the, the big years yeah. for Mid-South Wrestling. So my question is... Well, 
did uh-huh. did George have what I will call veto power? If Leroy says, I want to send this wrestler, could George say, you know, last time he was here, he did something I didn't like or, you know, this and that. Was he able to say, I don't want to use this wrestler? He could have, excuse me, he could have, but uh, I don't recall that ever happening. Okay. Uh, And we look at some of the wrestlers. Go ahead. uh, You know, the guys they were sending in were all, you know, good wrestlers. We never really had a problem with any of them. Uh, There might be a few little things that would happen in one town or another that my father would not like. And, of course, he would just address it with the wrestler involved. Right, you know, like like time, like grown ups, like, like adults. You talk man to man, and you settle it. <laughs> and I don't know if you were about to get into the Jim Ross. And well, no, I want. I actually want to start long before that because if we look at some of the wrestlers that worked for Leroy in the early seventies, um, okay. looking at Tom Jones, who came right. in in uh, I think he started in nineteen sixty nine, and in nineteen seventy one and seventy two, he uh, was a big hit teaming up with Billy Red Lions in 1974, Arman Hussein. I know in your book, you have some not so nice things to say about him later on, but in 1974, Arman Hussein was one of the top baby faces for Leroy. A couple years later, Ray Candy was uh, one of the top baby faces. And all three of them worked uh, in the Mississippi towns uh, at various times, correct? Right. Uh-huh. So there was no instance where, where George said, you know what, I don't want to use Tom Jones or I don't want to use Ray Candy. He, uh, if, they could, if they could make money, your dad would be happy to use them because I, I, I assume uh, your dad liked green. <laughs> it might have been his favorite color at oh. some point when he was a businessman. Of course, of course. Okay, and, and yeah, even, no, uh... yeah, even more than that, when... Uh, your dad and you ran your own territory. Just looking at the list of wrestlers you used uh, early on, you brought in Ernie Ladd for a month or two. Uh, as we mentioned before, Armand Hussein came to work for you briefly, but um, for a while you had both Tom Shaft and Tom Jones. You used King Cobra a lot. You used Pork Chop Cash. You used Burhead Jones. Norvell Austin came into work for you. Sugar Bear Harris, who of course later became Kamala. Um, and when Frankie, and at this point, Frankie Kane is the booker. Uh, and I assume Frankie is the one that chose the wrestlers that you guys use, correct? Yeah. Uh, well, when it didn't take long for when wrestlers would, when they heard that we had formed our own territory, we were getting contacted by a lot of young guys, you know, that were just looking for a place to work. And, uh, of course, a lot of, once Frankie had known from one place or another, or some that uh, you mentioned Tom Jones, I think my father, that was one of the first ones that he approached about working for us because we went way back before then. And, and Tom was a, a good friend of ours. Uh, King Cobra uh, had worked for us before. He lived in North Mississippi in Chula. And uh, so yeah, I mean, my father had contacted quite a few. Frankie had brought quite a few in. And a lot of times it would be like a recommendation of another wrestler that had come in and said, well, look, I know this guy that I worked with in such such territory. He's really a good hand. You know, you won't say about bringing him in. So it was just a collective sort of getting guys in here and out. 
Right. And and the the wrestlers I listed, all of them are African American wrestlers. Uh, and they were right. used up and down the cards. Burhead uh, and King Cobra were a little bit lower on the cards. When Sugar Bear first came in, he was sort of a mid-carder um, as, as a babyface. And then he turned heel and he became Ugly Bear Harris and he moved up the cards. Uh, Tom Shaft and Tom Jones were main eventers for most of the time they wrestled for you. Pork Chop Cash was a main eventer and he actually turned heel. So you've got African-American wrestlers up and down the cards as baby faces, as heels, as main eventers, as mid carters. And this was your territory, which you said had been drawing well for a couple of years. So there was clearly, uh, it was what well, it looks to me like there was never an issue using these wrestlers. Is that correct? No, it never was. And, and as far as, there's a young girl from Pantherburn, Mississippi, uh, that we trained, or some of the ladies that we brought in trained. Uh, and she was a black girl from Pantherburn. And with uh, Captain Dixon, she went by the name Cat LaRue. You mm-hmm. know, we booked her quite a bit. But yeah, no, I see her name hard. a lot in the uh, advertisements that I've collected over the years. You had a you had a few female wrestlers that probably live locally. Uh, so you would just book them occasionally as as something different to mix up the cards. And, and right. I, yeah, I know as we get into late 1978, the uh, you changed the name of the company from ICW, International Championship Wrestling, to AWA Championship Wrestling. And in November of 1978, the AWA world champion, Nick Bockwinkle, came in to defend the title. Now, my question is, who chose... Nick Bockwinkle's opponent. Was it Frankie or was it you and your dad or was it a group effort that decided we want, you know, our top draw our who we think is our best wrestler to face Nick Bockwinkle? Who decided who it was going to be? Well, probably everybody, you know, it was just sort of like, all right, we've got a chance to bring Bockwinkle in since we're now affiliated with the AWA and who would be the best person to, to put him in against, you know, to draw money. And who was that? And uh, pork chops. Pork chop, yes, pork chop cash. So when you had the opportunity to bring in the AWA World Heavyweight Champion and possibly, you know, uh, draw a really big house, and you wanted to put the best possible drawing opponent, you guys chose pork chops cash. Yeah, and you have and a fun. You have a great story in the book. I love the story in the book that the timekeeper was so into the match that he lost track of time, and what was supposed to have been sixty minutes actually went longer. Uh, yeah, I think it was about an hour and fifteen minutes, <laughs> and they could have gone longer. But yeah, the timekeepers just got so involved in the match. I think they thought Chops was just about to win it, you know, several times, and. Uh, Gene Lewis was a referee and it was quite a night. Those, those guys probably lost 10 or 15 pounds a piece during that match, but <laughs> that, that was one of the great I've ever seen. Uh, I know Johnny Montel used to laugh about it when, uh, pork chops came back to the dressing room. Of course he had, these guys were in tremendous shape, but pork chops had, you know, sort of curly hair. And when he came back, they had sweated so much, his hair was just totally straight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. I I wish somebody had filmed that because that would be a classic for young wrestlers to watch. 
I mean, that was two great workers. Well, so many of the matches back okay. then were not filmed, and they weren't they weren't meant to be filmed. The whole idea was to entertain the crowd and you know give them either a satisfying ending or make them angry so that they come back next week. But then, you know, each and every week you sort of change the story up and make sure the fans now have something new and different that they need to come see. And, you know, no one really thought of taping it. Do you know what happened to the TV tapes from ICW? Yeah. Well, at the time, they were the big tapes that we were sending around and they were being recorded over, but, the Greenwood station where we were doing the, they were doing the filming every Friday night for us. I'm pretty sure they had master copies of a lot of those. But by the time we got around to saying, well, damn, we need to get a hold of those. Uh, they had had a fire mm. at the station, at the TV station in Greenwood. So everything it was lost. They were gone. So. And that's a shame. But I yeah, I, I, you know, I know these, these tapes were really expensive back then. So instead of, you know, buying a new, buying, you know, three or four new tapes every week for every town. Uh, you just record it over the previous week's episode. I know a lot of wrestling fans today are very frustrated by that because they want to see this old footage. They want to see Nick Bockwinkle and Porkchop go 75 minutes, and we can't, and we never will, unfortunately. Right. Oh, yeah, I wish I could. I wish there were some out there somewhere, but I, I sure hadn't been able to find any. Yeah, I was actually on a wild goose chase in Dothan, Alabama, not too long ago, trying to find ads for shows in New Brockton. And it seems like they didn't run newspaper ads. So other than a store owner where maybe they used to hang posters that saved them all and has them all 50 years later, they'll never be found. Uh, just like a lot of the TV tapes, they will uh, they will never turn up. Um, which is, which is a shame because there's so much, I, I know I would love to see a 17 year old Terry Gordy teaming up with Lou Thez, which happened a few times, uh, in your territory. Yeah. Uh, that just sounds uh, incredible. I actually, I actually, when I was a manager for independent wrestling in NWA Wildside, I managed Terry's son, Ray Gordy who, of course, later went to the WWE uh, with Luke Gallows. Uh, they were, uh, you know, Jesse and Festus. But uh, uh, Ray was a great kid. I met Terry a couple of times when I first started getting into wrestling. Um, and, yeah, I would just love to see uh, what he looked like at 17 years old teaming up with, with Luthez because that just sounds so incredible to me for a young kid like that oh. to team with, you know, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Terry was such a natural. Actually, he was 16 when he came in, first came in for us. Mm. And uh, we teamed. Uh, uh, one thing that a lot of fans that used to come to the matches back then, one of the things that they usually always remember is the big feud with Terry Gordy and Dr. X, Jim Osborne. I mean, they had a hell of a feud and, and some unbelievable matches. Uh, and that reminds me, my 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 podcast co-host John Boucher had a question. At one point, Doctor X had another mass wrestler teaming with him for you guys. That was called Doctor XX or Double X. Right. Do you have any idea who that was? Do you remember? 
I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. <laughs> if you if you don't, you don't, that, and that's that, fine. That or who the missing link was. Right. I know that's another one that everybody uh, has drawn a blank on all these years later, and chances are it probably wasn't anybody of note, but you know, it also could have been someone young starting out that ended up using another name and becoming a little more popular. Um, but yeah, Dr. X, uh, you know, cause we cover the McGurk territory a lot and he had a huge run there in the early seventies. So uh, it's a great name to bring in several years later. Cause I'm sure all the fans remembered, uh, Jim Osborne as Dr. X. Yeah. But that, you know, I, I've even asked Frankie Kane, uh, who that was and Frankie's mind is better than, and mine, his memory, I mean, it's unbelievable. But he can't remember exactly who it was that we brought in as Dr. XX. But, uh, yeah, Jim. Jim was real loyal to us uh, pretty much the whole time we ran our own territory. And, you know, talking about Bill Watts. Yeah, and one thing I did not mention in my book, but Bill said a lot of things on TV and did a lot of things to try to hurt us, but he, he was so upset with Jim Osborne because Jim came to work for us that he exposed his name on, on TV. Hmm. You know, told everybody who he was. Well, that's Jim Osborne. You know, what's, what's the sense in that? You know, it didn't hurt him you know, at all, but. Well, yeah, that's a shame. And of course, I, I since we're talking about, you know, th- that story, I think uh, I want to ask you some questions about a story that has made the rounds um, that uh, originated from Jim Ross. And I just, you know, we'll just ask the questions and answer them honestly and, and let listeners take it in and, and choose what to believe in. So my question for you, Gil is did George uh, your father or you ever object to junkyard dog um, being booked in the main event of any of your towns in Mississippi? No, absolutely not. He was making he fact, he was making uh, money for you, wasn't he? When if JYD was on the card, you probably had extra extra you know money in everybody's envelope, right? Right, but he was the top draw then, and and he was such a nice guy. We got along with him great. We were good friends. Uh, I don't know where that story came from. It had to come from Bill or somebody. But Jim Ross is the one that ended up repeating it or, or saying it on two different. Uh, one was on his blog I read one time where he talked about it, and one was a a roundtable discussion with several people. Michael Hayes was in on that discussion, but he didn't say anything. But uh, now, dog, uh, he would cut interviews like, well, if he's coming to Jacksonville, I'm going to go by and see my good friend George Calkin, promoted George Calkin, and, you know, sit on the front porch. I think one time he said something about eating some watermelon things. They were hilarious interviews. And he was promoting, and there was a lot of times that I was sitting there with my father before we had recorded it, and we're watching the tape, and he would just laugh about it, you know. I mean, we were crazy about Dog. He was a good guy. Uh, yeah. So did any of the other wrestlers, when, they, when, when the wrestlers would do local promos for your other shows, did any of them mention your father's name at all uh, as part of their promo? 
Yeah, occasionally they would, you know, when they were coming into the town. Uh, so, so this wasn't an but, isolated incident of just Junkyard Dog naming you. This was something a lot of the wrestlers did. Because I, uh, the other thing I noticed in looking at all the advertisements for the house shows in Mississippi, at, at the bottom of the ad, it always very clearly states George and Gil Culkin promoters. Because your father was very well known in Mississippi. Um, you know, uh, being a businessman for many, many years. So I think, you know, it's just a, a status symbol and it's a way to legitimize your shows is, is for the wrestlers to say, hey, this is a George Culkin show. This is uh, this is the real deal. Well, that the fact that uh, my cousin, Jack Curtis Jr., was promoting the town's four bill running against us. During right. that time, right that and, yeah, and yep. he would he would put his name at the bottom. So you know, yeah. So we used probably, to not do yeah. that. It's probably something where the wrestlers knew that you know uh, the Culkins always like to have their name on stuff. So maybe when they were doing the interviews, they said, "Hey, we'll we'll throw a little shout out to George. He'll he'll love it." And like you said, when he when he was watching it on TV, he he laughed. He thought it was great. So you know, I'd like to thank you yeah. for. Uh, offering that up. And, you know, my whole thing is in order to get to the truth, you need to hear as many versions of the story as possible. And even when you have all those different sides, different people might come to their own conclusions, but as long as they're given as much information as possible to make the decision, hopefully they can make an informed decision. And and I'd like to thank you for answering those questions. Cause I, you know, that's a story that has uh, been around for years and there's only ever been one side to it. And you writing your book uh, puts it uh, to paper and readers can read, you know, people can read more about your experiences growing up in Mississippi and uh, being the son of a uh, wrestler and then later wrestling promoter and eventually somehow being hoodwinked into working in this crazy business we call wrestling. I know that's what happened to me when I was in my twenties. I never thought I grew up to be in wrestling and I was able to work in independent wrestling for many years. It's a, it's an experience unlike any other is certainly you don't have the stories. Um, had you been working for a nine to five job in an office somewhere, you wouldn't be able to tell these great stories about guys like junkyard dog and grizzly Smith and Frankie Kane and pork chop cash and Armand Hussein. So it's a really interesting book from a territory that you don't hear a lot about. Once again, you can find it on Amazon. It's the Mississippi wrestling territory, the untold story by Gil Culkin. Gil, thank you so much for your time uh, and for your words. And I also appreciate um, our conversations over the years. You helped me find a lot of towns in Mississippi that I didn't know you guys had ran that I was able to find the house show records for. So thank you for everything, Gil. Well, Alan, I want to thank you because you were a big help on my book when you had supplied some of the pictures that I didn't have. Yeah, I was uh, able to track down a a weekly uh, newspaper called the Mississippi Sportsman, um, which mostly focused right. on fishing and and uh, and auto racing. But I guess they, uh, when you guys had your territory, they ran pretty much every week. They ran a really nice photo spread, and I was able to find some really good pictures uh, that you used in your book. Oh, they did as. Bill and Doris Cupton that had the magazine and they would come every week to Jackson and and give us great coverage. They take pictures and have the results and everything. And as a matter of fact, some years after uh, Mrs. Cupton passed away, 
I contacted someone. I, I was hoping to get some of those old magazines, but they had been thrown away, I guess. I don't know. But, oh, yeah, they gave us uh, great coverage. And I apologize for misspelling your first name <laughs> on the first picture I gave you, Chris. <laughs> I think in my book, I didn't catch that until it was too late. It's it's but, uh, okay. I like I said, most people that listen to the podcast don't even know my real name, which is Alan Barry. They know me as Al Getz. So I'm used to uh, being called all sorts of different things by different people, and it's not a problem at all. I was very happy to help. And again, Gil, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you asking me. So there you have it from Gil Culkin. Uh, who was part of the father and son promoting team in Mississippi in the, uh, well, Gill sort of got involved in the mid-70s up through the early 1980s when they uh, were the local promoters for Bill Watts and Mid-South Wrestling. So I actually, again, in trying to figure out how this story sort of permeated and grew and changed over time, I reached out to Greg Klein, uh, Greg is the author of The King of New Orleans, How the Junkyard Dog Became Professional Wrestling's First Black Superhero. And, you know, I sort of asked him if he had any actual documentation of, you know, th- these allegations against the Culkins. And, and he sort of said the same thing that I suspected, that looking at um, how people like Dave Meltzer retold Jim Ross's story about Junkyard Dog you you sort of get this uh, evolution and each time the story is retold slightly less details are involved and and he said he he probably said it, it's reasonable to think that when you see Melter mentioning this story about junkyard dog specifically and them not wanting to book him that that's how the story grew and changed over time and and became something that is demonstrably false so there you go. Two authors, Gil Culkin, of course, wrote his book about the Mississippi wrestling territory, The Untold Story, and Greg Klein literally wrote the book on the junkyard dog. So you have it straight from the horse's mouth. So, John, you know, given all this information, it's really hard. I, I think it ends up you have Bill Watson one in on one, you have a triangle. You have Bill Watts on one yep. side, you have Leroy McGurk on the other side, and you have the Culkins on the other side. And all of them, at one point or another, have alleged that at least one of the other two parties are racists. And so yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to to get a good feel for where the truth is. And the only thing we can yeah. do is present all sides of the story. And hopefully from there, our listeners can uh, form their own opinions and learn something new, as both John and I love to do every month, which yeah. brings us to a segment we do called this month I learned where both John and I name one new thing we learned since the last podcast came out, ideally about wrestling, but doesn't necessarily have to be limited to that. So, John, what did you learn this month? Well, Al, it is October. It's Halloween season. Uh, you know, scary movies, uh, candy, monsters. I love monsters, Al. Who uh, and I love wrestling. And I, I love wrestling, too. And this might surprise you. Uh, some people have referred to me as a traditionalist when it comes to the wrestling that I like. So it doesn't really fit in in terms of whatever else it is that I like in wrestling. I enjoy monsters in wrestling. I don't, I don't mean like a monster heel. Uh, nothing against uh, Ox Baker. The monster heels. But I mean, I mean, I'm talking like the Wolfman, Eddie Farkas, or, uh, or Dr. Frank, or my personal favorite, the Mummy. 
there have been, you know, there have been lots of mummies. The Bobby Duncan mummy, the Ron Wright mummy, Ron Reese as the, as the Yeti, uh, Eddie Marlin, probably the most well-known, Benji Ramirez. Mm-hmm. Um, I had thought that Benji Ramirez was the the, the first wrestling mummy in the, in the in the U.S. It was right starting in the early '60s, '62, I think, goes pretty far back. But this month I learned that there was a wrestling mummy all the way back in 1941 in the Pacific Northwest huh. for the Western Athletic Club promotion. Uh, I think it's Virgil Hamlin and Fed Ty. Uh, this mummy was actually future Buffalo promoter Ignacio Pedro Martinez. Huh. Uh, and the way he's described in the papers, it's not quite elaborate as the Ramirez gummy gimmick. It's basically he's described as uh, like wearing bright red trunks and a white rubber mask, uh, which somehow seems almost more horrifying than the, <laughs> than the other kind of mummy. And I really need to, to uh, try to find some photos of that now. Um, and I'll send over one of the articles I found about the uh, uh, the Martinez mummy to you. But the that's, Martinez uh, that's mummy, the Ramirez mummy. mummy. Is it? Is there any reason yeah. they are all uh, Latino? La Momia. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't. Oh, yes. Oh, we can't forget La Momia. La Momia from uh, Titanus and El Ring. Yeah. All right. Well, so there you go. Benji Ramirez was not the first mummy. Well, I would assume the first mummy was, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But the first wrestling mummy may have been in the early 1940s. So, John, we talked earlier about a unique stipulation match that probably happened, uh, I think, in at least three towns in the McGurk Territory in 1965. And that was where Joe McCarthy put up his prized hunting dog in a match against Stretch Phillips. So uh, I learned about another unusual and perhaps just a two-time only stipulation match. John, have you ever heard of a trucker death match? A trucker? A trucker trucker. death match. This was uh, involving Bull Bolinski against Jim Dillon. So what was the thing about Bolinski? He always, uh, he had the uh, air horn with him so on at least two occasions in amarillo they built up uh this feud between bolinski and dylan to a trucker death match where a horn was placed in each corner of the ring and to win the match you had to drag your opponent to each corner and uh and squeeze the horn (laughs) wow so yeah that's a another in the long list of unusual stipulation matches in pro wrestling history, the trucker death match, which may have only happened twice and probably for good reason. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't in 2001 that this happened in WCW. Wow. Huh. And Jim Dillon is, is JJ Dillon. Correct? Yes, of course. The one and the same who I uh, saw recently at cauliflower alley club uh, back in yeah. September. Dillon made an appearance. So yeah, an action packed episode of charting the territories this month, John. Uh, don't forget, fans, you can find me on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's L G E T Z Wrestling. And of course, our blog is at chartingtheterritories.com. And this podcast is available on most major podcast platforms. So if that's where you're listening to us, be sure to click the follow or subscribe button or icon so that you will know when new episodes are out. And as far as finding John on Twitter, John, remind our listeners one last time 
where they can find oh, you. I am at, at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R on Twitter. Follow me, please. Thank you. Yeah, and next month on the podcast, in addition to the fourth quarter of 1973 in Mid-Atlantic, so we will finish up the fourth quarter and see who the newcomers are. We'll also look at the fourth quarter of 1977 in the McGurk Territory, where Dick Murdoch turns babyface just a few months after turning heel. Dr. X turns heel just a few weeks after returning to the territory for the first time in a few years. And the assassin picks up his reign of terror right where he left off after a decade away from the territory. We'll also talk a little more about the split between Leroy and Mississippi promoter George Culkin. We'll also look at the third quarter of 1965 in Leroy McGurk's territory, where among the wrestlers returning to the area after absences are Anton Ripper Leone and Argentina Zuma. And of course, earlier mm. on the podcast, we mentioned both these two men being suspects in the curious case of Mr. Zabo, which is featured on my other podcast, Wrestling History Mysteries. The next episode of that podcast, which will come out the second Thursday in November, I will further discuss Argentina Zuma, in particular, trying to pinpoint his whereabouts in 1963 and perhaps confirm or exclude him as a suspect. And we'll also discuss why Danny Hodge, who emerged as a suspect, as I mentioned, based on the research of David Baker, was definitely not Mr. Zabo. Mm -hmm. To be the first to know when new episodes of Charting the Territories, Wrestling History Mysteries, and Stats 101 are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. John, thank you as always for joining me on this trip back in time, and we will see you next month. See you next month.